Hi, I'm Amy Goodman. Democracy Now! is committed to bringing you the ad-free, in-depth news you rely on. Our daily global news hour is not funded by corporations or the government. We don't run ads or have a paywall. We rely on you to make our daily news hour possible. Please donate $5, $10, or any amount at democracynow.org today to support our independent reporting. Your gift will be matched dollar for dollar. Thank you so much. From New York, this is Democracy Now! We've reached a bipartisan budget agreement. Now we're ready to move to the full Congress. And I think it's a really important step forward. The agreement prevents the worst possible crisis, a default for the first time in our nation's history, an economic recession, retirement accounts devastated, millions of jobs lost. President Joe Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy are urging lawmakers to support a deal to suspend the debt ceiling till January 1st, 2025, in order to prevent the United States from defaulting for the first time in history. The deal limits non-military spending while increasing the Pentagon's budget. It also places new work requirements on some recipients of food stamps and fast-tracks the approval of the controversial Mountain Valley Pipeline. We'll get the latest. Then we look at a major new biography of Martin Luther King. Well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead. But it really doesn't matter with me now because I've been to the mountaintop. We'll speak with Jonathan Eig, author of King, A Life. The book is based in part on thousands of newly released FBI files on the civil rights leader. We'll also hear about what the world misunderstands about how Martin Luther King viewed Malcolm X. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. President Joe Biden and Republican House Speaker Kevin McCarthy have agreed to a tentative deal that would suspend the limit on the U.S. national debt until 2025. Biden said Saturday the compromise agreement would prevent the U.S. from defaulting on its loans, something Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen says could happen as soon as June 5th, unless members of Congress move quickly to raise the debt ceiling. And it takes uh, the threat of catastrophic default off the table, protects our hard-earned and historic economic recovery. And the agreement also represents a compromise, which means no one got everything they want. But that's the responsibility of governing. The deal calls for non-military discretionary spending to remain mostly flat, while boosting military spending by about 3 percent. It would cut IRS funding and would add new work requirements for some recipients of food assistance and temporary aid for needy families, or TANF program. The deal would also lift a moratorium on student loan payments and would fast-track the approval and construction of the proposed six point $6 billion Mountain Valley Pipeline in Virginia and West Virginia. We'll have more on the debt ceiling after headlines. 
Sudan's army has agreed to extend a ceasefire with a rival paramilitary group for a further five days, despite ongoing breaches of a week-long truce. Clashes have continued in the capital, Khartoum, where victims include dozens of babies who died in Sudan's largest orphanage after workers fled heavy gunfire in the area. There's been no let-up in fighting in Sudan's West Darfur region, where aid agencies are warning of a humanitarian catastrophe after militias burned entire villages to the ground. More than 90,000 people from the region have crossed into neighboring Chad. On Monday, the U.N. High Commissioner for Refugees, Filippo Grandi, predicted more than a million people may flee Sudan by October. He spoke from Cairo after a visit to Sudan. What I heard is stories of loss, of separated families, of hardship, of very dangerous journeys from Sudan, of people fleeing from fighting to try to find security in first in other parts of Sudan, then in neighboring countries like Egypt. Russia has unleashed its largest drone attacks on Ukraine's capital, Kiev, since the start of its invasion 15 months ago. Ukraine's military says it shot down most of the Iranian-made drones launched at Kyiv by Russia. Dozens of explosions and frequent air raid sirens throughout the weekend sent civilians running for cover. Thousands of people spent the weekend sheltering inside Kyiv subway stations. At least two people were killed, several others injured by falling debris from downed drones. Meanwhile, Russian officials say eight Ukrainian drones reached Moscow earlier today and were intercepted by Russian air defenses. At least two of the drones reportedly crashed into residential apartment towers but caused no injuries. Russia's defense ministry called it a terrorist attack. Elsewhere, an anti-Kremlin paramilitary group said it had carried out another cross-border attack from Ukraine. The group includes self-avowed neo-Nazis. Turkey's Supreme Election Council has declared longtime incumbent Recep Tayyip Erdogan the victor of Sunday's runoff presidential election. Erdogan will extend his 20-year rule for a further five years, by far the longest rule of any leader since the founding of the Republic of Turkey a century ago. Erdogan received just over 52 percent of the vote, beating challenger Kemal Kılıçdaroğlu, who rallied supporters after his defeat. In this election, the will of the people to change an authoritarian regime emerged, despite all the pressures. We will continue our struggle on all fronts. Israel's military killed a Palestinian security officer during an overnight raid Monday in the occupied West Bank city of Jenin. 37-year-old Ashraf Mohammed Ibrahim died from gunshot wounds to the chest and stomach. Eight other Palestinian men were injured by live fire. Elsewhere, Jewish settlers on Monday moved to reestablish the evacuated West Bank outpost of Chomesh. The settlement was dismantled in 2005 by then-Prime Minister Ariel Sharon, 
but was recently approved for resettlement by Benjamin Netanyahu's far-right government. The U.S. State Department said it was deeply troubled by the reopening of Chomesh. This follows an attack Friday by Israeli settlers on Palestinian farmers in a village near Ramallah, which left five Palestinians wounded, one of whom was shot in the head. Palestinian Atav al-Nassan says Israeli soldiers assisted the settlers in the assault. We came here to help the people who were planting and harvesting after the settlers attacked them. We came to help them and protect them. The settlers and soldiers attacked us. They burnt this car. They didn't let us put out the fire. They burnt it in front of our eyes. A court in Libya has sentenced 23 men to death over their roles in the 2015 takeover of the city of Sirte by ISIS fighters. The men were blamed for crimes, including the kidnapping and beheading of dozens of Coptic Orthodox Christians. Fourteen others were sentenced to life in prison. ISIS rose to power during Libya's civil war that followed the 2011 assassination of longtime leader Muammar Gaddafi by U.S.-supported rebels. In Uganda, human rights advocates are condemning President Yoweri Museveni for signing a sweeping anti-LGBTQ measure into law that makes same-sex relationships punishable by life imprisonment and even the death sentence in some cases. It's one of the most draconian anti-LGBTQ laws in the world. This is Ugandan LGBTQ activist Dulabi Kwagala. There's no hope, but where are we supposed to go? You don't want us in your country. You're not giving us jobs. You're not giving us education. You're not giving us medication. You are criminalizing people renting to us. Where do you want us to go? You are arresting us for literally doing nothing, for simply existing, you know? But where are we supposed to go? How did we become refugees in our own countries? Venezuelan President Nicolas Maduro arrived in Brazil Monday, marking his first visit since he was banned by the former far-right President Jair Bolsonaro. Maduro was welcomed to the National Palace in the capital, Brasilia, by President Luis Inácio Lula da Silva ahead of a meeting of 11 South American presidents today. During a joint news conference, President Lula sharply criticized the United States for failing to recognize Maduro's legitimacy and for economic sanctions that have devastated Venezuela's economy. Is it his fault? No, it's the fault of the United States, which created an, an extremely exaggerated blockade. I always say that a blockade is worse than war, because in a war, it's usually soldiers who die in battle. But a blockade kills children, women, people who have nothing to do with the ideological dispute in play. Here in the United States, mass shootings killed at least 16 people over the Memorial Day weekend and left dozens more injured. In New Mexico, three people were killed in a shootout Saturday by rival motorcycle gangs in the resort town of Red River. In Florida, nine people were hospitalized with bullet wounds Monday when two groups began a gunfight on the crowded Hollywood Broadwalk. Among those injured was a one-year-old child. The Gun Violence Archive reports nearly 17,500 people across the United States have been killed by firearms so far this year with 70 separate mass shootings in the month of May. 
A judge in South Carolina has suspended the state's ban on abortions after six weeks of pregnancy until it can be reviewed by the South Carolina Supreme Court. The temporary injunction was granted Friday, one day after Republican Governor Henry McMaster signed the legislation. South Carolina's abortion ban provides only limited exceptions for rape and incest survivors or when a patient's life and health are in danger. And in Texas, the Republican-led State House has voted overwhelmingly to impeach the Republican Attorney General Ken Paxton, suspending him from office over accusations of corruption that include accepting bribes, obstruction of justice, and abuse of office. The move comes after a House committee launched an investigation into Paxton, describing a years-long pattern of misconduct. The FBI has also been probing Paxton for years over allegations he used his office to help a donor. The Texas Senate will now conduct an impeachment trial where at least two-thirds of senators must support Paxton's removal from office. The impeachment proceedings came as Texas lawmakers wrapped up this year's legislative session with the approval of a bill that gives Texas Republican Secretary of State authority over elections in Harris County home to Houston and a stronghold for Democratic voters. Last week, Harris County Judge Lena Hidalgo called the legislation a bold-faced power grab. They're couching this in the language of reform. But they're not reform. With a grin on their faces, these legislators are taking power away from the constituents they pledged to represent. Because, by the way, Harris County is one of the most diverse counties in the state. We're 44% Hispanic. We're 20% black, 7.4% Asian, 25% immigrant, and we are proud of our diversity. That is a Texas this governor and those leaders do not recognize. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. When we come back, President Joe Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy are urging lawmakers to support a deal to suspend the debt ceiling until January 1st, 2025, in order to prevent the United States from defaulting for the first time in history. Stay with us. Nothing is as good as they say it is. That's the way it is. I wish I'd known Nothing is as good as they say it is by Sparks. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. 
President Joe Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy are urging lawmakers to support a deal to suspend the debt ceiling until January 1st, 2025, in order to prevent the United States from defaulting on its debt for the first time in history. A tentative deal has been reached, but it must still be approved by members of Congress, where progressive lawmakers and members of the far-right House Freedom Caucus have expressed opposition to parts of the deal. President Biden announced the agreement Saturday. And this is a deal is good news, for, I believe, you'll see, for the American people. The agreement prevents the worst possible crisis, a default for the first time in our nation's history. An economic recession, retirement accounts devastated, millions of jobs lost. It also protects key priorities and accomplishments and values that congressional Democrats and I have fought long for, long and hard for. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy praised the deal, which places new caps on government spending. We were able to do this when the president said he wasn't even going to talk to us. This is really a step in the right direction. It puts us a trajectory that's different. We put a statutory cap on only spending 1% for the next six years. So we let government grow, but at a slower rate. The deal calls for non-military discretionary spending to remain mostly flat, while boosting military spending by about 3 percent. New work requirements would be established for some recipients of food stamp and the Temporary Aid for Needy Families program, and it cuts funding to the IRS. In addition, the deal would also lift a moratorium on student loan payments, which has been in place since the pandemic. The deal also speeds up the approval and construction of the proposed $6.6 billion Mountain Valley Pipeline in Virginia and West Virginia, which has been strongly backed by Democratic Senator Joe Manchin. The group Food and Water Watch condemned this provision, saying it will irreversibly scar Biden's legacy on the environment and clean energy. Energy. Virginia's Democratic Senator Tim Kaine says he'll introduce an amendment to strip the Mountain Valley pipeline from the debt limit bill. The debt ceiling legislation now heads today to the House Rules Committee, where two members of the House Freedom Caucus—Congress members Chip Roy of Texas and Ralph Norman of South Carolina—have already said they oppose the deal. Meanwhile, South Carolina Republican Senator Lindsey Graham has blasted the deal for not increasing the military budget enough. Progressive critics of the deal include Bishop William Barber of the Poor People's Campaign. He said, quote, the great contradiction of this debt ceiling deal is that while poverty is the fourth leading cause of death, this deal will make it harder to get food stamps, but easier to spend money on war. We're joined now by Lindsay Owens, executive director of the Groundwork Collaborative, a progressive think tank. She's a former policy advisor to Senator Elizabeth Warren. Lindsay, welcome to Democracy Now! It's great to have you with us. Um, can you basically summarize this deal further um, and talk about your concerns with it? Sure. So the deal does two big things. First, um, it suspends the debt ceiling until January 2025. So assuming Congress gets this passed before the June 5th X date, um, we hopefully won't be in a position to default on our debt again until early 2025, when we'll get to do this all over again. The second thing that the proposal does is sets two years of budget caps. This is effectively the maximum amount of money that Congress um, allocates for the federal government to spend over the next two years. 
as you mentioned, um, for the first year, they set effectively flat funding, and for the second year, a 1% increase. But I think it's really important to know that given the high inflation that Americans are experiencing right now, um, flat funding isn't so flat. It's actually an inflation-adjusted cut, which means that um, we will not be able to offer the same amount of services we did last year after inflation takes its share, really eats its share. And then in addition to the funding levels and obviously the suspension of the debt ceiling, um, you know, Congress tucked in a variety of other um, pretty harmful proposals, um, including the, the Mountain Valley Pipeline being greenlit, including, um, you know, basically bringing student loan payments back online beginning in September, um, which is really critically important given that, you know, the Supreme Court is hearing, has heard this case and will be deciding soon. Um, if the Supreme Court knocks down the Biden administration's effort to offer broad-based student loan forgiveness, um, as early as September 1st, Americans will have to start paying those student loans again. So there are a number of problematic provisions that Congress, you know, tucked into this proposal that they'll be voting on later this week that I think really set us back um, in terms of the economic health of this country. I want to go to New York Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez speaking on the House floor Thursday. Republicans have run up a bill that they now do not want to pay. They have run up this bill with extremely excessive military spending. They have run up this bill with extraordinary tax cuts for the wealthiest people in this country. And now when it comes down to time to pay for this bill, they, they do not want to pay it. And not only that, but they are accusing Democrats of saying we spend too much. For anyone that wants to entertain that thought, I ask you to think about the last time a person said, has said in this country that the government does too much for them, that their social security check was too high, that teachers are paid too much. When was the last time anyone has heard or seen that? Progressive Caucus Chair uh, Representative Pramila Jayapal spoke to CNN's Jake Tapper about the new work requirements in the debt deal. We are one of the only countries in the world, if not the only country in the world that is an industrialized country that puts any requirements on people who just want food. So very bad policy does not save money. And by the way, does not work. We've seen reams of data that show that when you put these work requirements in, um, they're really just administrative red tape that mm -hmm. prevent the people who need help from getting help. And speaking to Fox News Monday, the Florida Republican governor and presidential hopeful Ron DeSantis blasted the deal. Prior to this deal, Kaylee, our country was careening towards bankruptcy. And after this deal, our country will still be careening towards bankruptcy. And to say you can do $4 trillion of increases in the next year and a half, I mean, that's a massive amount of spending. Uh, I think that we've gotten ourselves on a trajectory here really since March of 2020 uh, with some of the COVID spending. It totally reset the budget, and they're sticking with that. Uh, and I think that that's just going to be totally in adequate to get us in a better spot. Look, in Florida, we run big budget surpluses. Uh, we have a $1.2 trillion economy, but our debt is only $17 billion, second lowest per capita in the country. Uh, but we make tough choices, and we make sure that we look forward to the long haul. Obviously, in Washington, D.C., they do these cycles to just get them through the next election, and that's ultimately one of the reasons why they continue to fail. 
Uh, Congress member Chip Roy of Texas called the deal a turd sandwich. And the far-right radical Lauren Boebert of Colorado said eliminating $1.8 billion for Biden's new army of IRS agents is great until you realize that Democrats appropriated $80 billion for the IRS. Lindsay Owens, if you can respond to it all. Sure. I mean, it's it's interesting how Congress always finds the money for military spending, for military spending, always finds the money, um, you know, to cut taxes for the wealthiest Americans. And I think the IRS funding um, cuts in this bill are a great example of this. Um, you know, last year when Congress passed the Inflation Reduction Act, they allocated 80 billion in new spending for the IRS. Um, that spending is supposed to do a couple of things. First, it's supposed to enable the IRS to go after the wealthiest tax cheats. About 70 percent of the tax gap, that's the difference between the taxes owed and the taxes collected by the IRS, are actually coming from the top 1 percent of filers who are evading their taxes. And the IRS just hasn't had the resources, um, the, the humans, the staff, and the, the financial resources to, to crack down on that, to go after those tax evaders. And actually, over time, over the last 10 years, um, you know, audits of the wealthiest filers have dropped precipitously. And so when Republicans are going after this IRS funding, um, they're very explicitly um, effectively greenlighting, paving the way for the wealthiest Americans to continue cheating on their taxes. The other thing that that money was slated to do um, is really modernize the agency um, to be able to to bring down wait times so that Americans who have questions about filing their taxes can, you know, get on the phone with an agent and get those questions answered. And it's already working. Um, call wait times were down 85 percent this tax season, um, which is really wonderful for so many Americans. I mean, really improving that customer service. So, you know, I think the IRS cuts are really unfortunate um, here. And I think they really show the hypocrisy uh, of the Republican Party, who um, likes to talk a lot about deficit reduction, but actually um, ushered in a series of cuts um, that increases the deficit. Because when you spend money on the IRS, you, you not only recoup all of that money back, you actually recoup more um, in those additional revenues um, that the agency is, is able to bring in by cracking down on the wealthiest tax cheats. So, Lindsay Owens, what is the Groundwork Collaborative's alternatives at this point um, in a number of different areas? And how does this work right now through the House, which has been called back now today in the House Rules Committee? Will it e even get out of that? And then tomorrow, a vote expected. Yeah, you're hearing a lot from the Biden administration officials right now as they try to sell this deal, which obviously, you know, we we don't want to default on our debt. Um, it would be, you know, an extraordinary catastrophe. Um, you know, economists predict up to seven or eight million Americans unemployed if we did that. So obviously we want to avoid the the worst case scenario. But you're hearing a lot from the administration that, you know, this this deal could have been worse. And so Democrats really need to line up behind it. And you know, our position at the Groundwork Collaborative is that this deal could have also been better, um, that it's possible to take care of the debt ceiling, you know, without kicking older Americans who need food assistance in the teeth, which is what this bill does. Um, increasing those SNAP work requirements. Um, you know, we have work requirements already on the books for individuals 18 to 49, and this bill um, extends those to folks ages 50 to 55. I mean, if you are a, a poor American 
um, in your early 50s, um, not working, um, you face a lot of a lot of obstacles to getting back into the labor market. Um, age discrimination, um, you know, your skills may have atrophied. You've been out of the labor market for a while. Um, you know, a lot of older Americans are not going to be able to clear that hurdle and, you know, and as a result, go without food. And so I think, you know, there was an easier, softer way here. First, I think, as many of us advocated for, um, you know, as soon as we realized that we wouldn't have the House of Representatives in this next Congress right after the election in November um, you know, Congress should have taken on the debt ceiling then during the lame duck and avoided this debacle of hostage taking by Kevin McCarthy altogether. Um, but also, I think there are um, alternatives the Biden administration could pursue to negotiation even still, including um, invoking the 14th Amendment, which effectively says um, we have to pay our debts. And so we'll do that. Um, so I think, you know, going forward, um, you know, we're going to be in this position again in 2025. And it's really our hope that, um, you know, as we approach that 2025 um, debt ceiling, um, you know, limit again, um, we explore alternatives, including if we want to bring down the deficit, let's do it through revenue. Let's tax the wealthiest Americans and corporations, make sure they pay their fair share instead of, um, you know, this sort of death by a thousand cuts scenario where we really just go after programs that so many Americans depend on um, that, frankly, um, are already underfunded after decades of, um, you know, not really meeting um, meeting the needs um, of Americans on a number of counts. So, Lindsay Owens, does the Groundwork Collaborative uh, recommend that the Progressive Caucus vote down uh, this deal? Look, I think we have to clear the debt ceiling. So I would say if, you know, if we're getting to the point where McCarthy um, and the Republican caucus in the House is unable to supply the votes um, to get this over the finish line and, and therefore they need the progressive caucus's vote, uh, you know, to pass this bill, then I think the, the short version is the progressive should get something for it. Let's get some policies in place. Um, you know, that, that work for Americans. Um, let's maybe remove this uh, harmful student loan provision so that if the Supreme Court does strike down uh, broad-based student loan forgiveness, um, Americans can get another extension um, while the administration works on a plan B. So I think if the progressives are going to have to vote for this, they should get something um, for their vote. Lindsay Owens, I want to thank you for being with us, executive director of the Groundwork Collaborative. Coming up, we look at a major new biography of Martin Luther King, based in part on thousands of newly released FBI files on the human rights leader. We'll speak with author Jonathan Eig and also ask him about what he revealed about how the world misunderstands what Martin Luther King thought of Malcolm X. Stay with us. He spoke with words that sounded more like music Words my heart could finally understand He showed me pride and said I could feel better But no better than the smallest of the small he showed me victories where no one loses Showed me the answer for us all The song I sing I sing for you, sweet 
Harry Belafonte singing Martin Luther King at a concert in Germany in 1988. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. We spend the rest of the hour with the author of the first major biography of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in decades. Jonathan Igg's King, A Life, was published this month and draws on unredacted FBI files, as well as the files of the personal aide to President Lyndon Johnson that shows how he and others partnered with the FBI's surveillance of King and efforts to destroy him, led by FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover. I wrote in a New York Times opinion essay about the book that the documents reveal how, quote, Johnson was more of an antagonist to King and a conspirator with Hoover than he has been portrayed. By personalizing the FBI's assault on King, Americans cling to a view of history that isolates a few bad actors who oppose the civil rights movement, including Hoover, Governor George Wallace of Alabama, and the Birmingham lawman Bull Connor. They thus fail to acknowledge the institutionalized, well organized resistance to change in our society. That's Jonathan Eig, author of King, A Life, for which he also interviewed more than 200 people, including many who knew King closely, like the singer, actor, and activist, the late, great Harry Belafonte. The book has also drawn attention for its revelation that King was less critical of Malcolm X than previously thought. Ig found the original transcript of an interview King did with Alex Haley, who's the author who collaborated with Malcolm X on his autobiography. The transcript shows how Haley misquoted and even made up part of King's response. In fact, King never said Malcolm has done himself or our people a great disservice, and King's comment about fiery, demagogic oratory was not related to Malcolm X. To talk about all of this, we're joined in Chicago by Jonathan Eig. Welcome to Democracy Now!, Jonathan. This is an epic work. Congratulations on years of research and writing. Why don't we begin where I left off, on this expose— around what Martin Luther King really thought of Malcolm X. Talk about the significance of how a Alex Haley uh, shaped the narrative for so many decades and who Haley was. Alex Haley was one of the best-known African-American journalists of his era. He wrote for a lot of mainstream white publications like Reader's Digest and Playboy. And the Playboy interview that he did with Martin Luther King was the longest interview, the longest published interview that, that King ever gave. So it had significant impact. It reached a lot of white readers who were not otherwise going to be exposed to such a long interview with King. And um, it's because of the, the comments that King made or uh, supposedly made about Malcolm X, um, it's it's been handed down for decades, for generations, that this is what King actually thought about Malcolm X. And it was, as you pointed out in the introduction, largely fabricated. And talk about how you found this out and what you understand King really thought about Malcolm X. They actually only met in person once, right, uh, in Washington, D.C., although Malcolm X did go to Selma and talk about what he said to, Mal to Martin Luther King's wife, Coretta Scott King. 
Yes, the men only met once, and um, and Malcolm did go. He was he was speaking in Tuskegee, and some students told him that King was was in Selma. They could drive there and be there, um, you know, within hours. So uh, Malcolm X got in the car and drove to Selma. Did not get to meet King because he was in jail, but he did sit next to Coretta Scott King at a church rally and said to Coretta. Um, let your husband know that I'm here, that I that I support him, and and that maybe it's helpful to him in a way. If everybody knows that I'm the alternative, perhaps they'll be more willing to listen to Dr. King. And um, that's the truth. The truth of their relationship, as James Baldwin wrote, is that by the time of their deaths, they were pretty much indistinguishable in their philosophies. Uh, that may be a bit of an exaggeration, but they were definitely moving toward each other. And this quote um, in Playboy really. Um, really did a disservice. It really misrepresented their relationship. Uh, one of the things that I do in any um, time I find a really good interview with, with the subject of a book that I'm working on is I'll go to the archives and try to find the original tapes or the original transcript of that interview to see what was left out. And that's really all I was doing uh, when I went looking for the Alex Haley transcript of his interview with Martin Luther King. I wanted to see what got left out because, you know, you can never really publish the full interview. You have to choose the best parts. But as I was reading through the transcript, I was shocked to discover that um, whole parts of it were were moved around so that answers to questions were, were changed in their meaning. And some um, sections were completely fabricated. And King never said that um, that he thought that he thought Malcolm's um, fiery oratory was doing a disservice to the black community. Um, in fact, he said that about the Nation of Islam, but not specifically about Malcolm. And when asked about Malcolm, King actually expressed great open-mindedness. He said, I don't agree when, when Malcolm X calls for violence, but I'm also not so arrogant to think that I have all the answers. And he's suggesting in this interview, the part that wasn't published, that he's open-minded to learning more and to talking more to Malcolm. That's one of the great things about King. He was always interested in in listening to the people who disagreed with him. So if you can talk about that kind of research that you did, Jonathan, and why you chose uh, to do a profile of King, the uh, not just a profile, an epic work. Um, talk about the other biographies that you wrote and how that brought you to King at this critical moment when— um, what? Harry Belafonte just died. He was 96. Dr. King, of course, would have been in his 90s. And what that means about those around him who knew him best. About 10 years ago, when I was working on my Muhammad Ali biography, I was interviewing people who knew Ali and also knew Martin Luther King, and I was asking them about the couple of occasions when King and Ali met. I was speaking to people like Harry Belafonte, Dick Gregory, Andrew Young, Reverend Jesse Jackson. And as I began talking to them, I found myself just asking a lot of questions about King. I was curious what he was like. And that's when it occurred to me that in the last, you know, 40, 50 years or so, we've turned King into kind of a two-dimensional figure. And I think especially with the advent of the national holiday, he's become kind of a hallmark card and we've watered down his vision. And these men were telling me that they considered King a radical, as radical as Malcolm X in many ways. And the public image of him has changed so much that I felt like this was a great opportunity to write a book that would correct that image and also an opportunity to write that book while so many people who knew King were still alive. And I traveled the country over the last six years interviewing 
uh, folks, not just like the ones I mentioned, but also Juanita Abernathy, Dr. June Dobbs-Butts, Reverend James Lawson, Reverend Bernard Lafayette, and asking them, what was it like to be around King? What was his message? Um, how have we uh, lost sight of the real man? Uh, I wanted to write a more intimate portrait. And it had been, you know, a good 35 years since the last King biography had been published. So I felt like this was an urgent mission, really. Jonathan, I want to get to his early years, the descendant of enslaved people. But I also want to talk about um, what you discovered in the last years from declassified FBI documents and also um, this personal secretary of Lyndon Baines Johnson uh, kept her own uh, archive and how that wasn't released until recently. I want to talk about FBI surveillance from the Kennedys to Johnson and how it wasn't just surveillance, but proactive attempting to drive Dr. Martin Luther King to suicide. It began with an authorization by Robert F. Kennedy um, to um, begin to surveil King. Um, They began by um, putting wiretaps on some of his associates' phones. Eventually, they started wiretapping King's home and office phones. And then they also began to put listening devices in his hotel rooms. Originally, the the, uh, rationale for that was that they were concerned he was consorting, associating with communists and former communists. Um, When it became clear that King was not interested at all in uh, communists and the communists were not influencing the civil rights movement in any way that that moved them toward uh, communist beliefs. They they acknowledged that, but by then they had become obsessed with his personal life and trying to catch him um, in affairs with other women other than Coretta, so uh, his wife. So um, it became really a personal vendetta, fueled in part by the racism in the FBI, uh, fueled in part by the insecurities of J. Edgar Hoover, who um, resisted and, and really raged when King criticized the FBI for, for being racist. And then it became really the personal obsession of people like Hoover and LBJ, who I think just had a prurient interest in, in keeping tabs on King's personal life. And talk about how they weaponized that. I mean, you you talk extensively about Martin Luther King dealing with depression. And I think this also goes to uh, demystifying an icon. It doesn't take away any of his power. But for people um, to who are who wonder if they themselves could make a difference in the world, who suffer from depression, from his early sort of half-hearted attempts at suicide as a child to being institutionalized um, and yet accomplishing so much. Take us on that trajectory. I think it's really important for us to acknowledge that our heroes have flaws And uh, if we expect our heroes to be perfect, nobody will ever rise to the occasion. Nobody will even try. And King was deeply flawed. He, he, he meant, as you mentioned, he attempted suicide twice as a teenager, jumping from a second story window of his home when he was upset about uh, first an injury suffered by his grandmother and then later by her death. And when he won the Nobel Peace Prize, he was hospitalized at the time for what he called anxiety, but for what Coretta described as depression. He was hospitalized numerous times throughout his life uh, because the 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 pressure had just gotten to him so badly and and of course the FBI knew about this and and attempted to weaponize it as you say um, they they took his personal life um, it reported on it 
distributed that information not only to the President of the United States, but to members of Congress and to members of the media, hoping that somebody would go public with it and destroy his marriage, destroy his reputation, and essentially destroy the civil rights movement. At one point, they even planned for a replacement for King, choosing Samuel Pierce to become the next leader of the civil rights movement once they managed to get King out of the way. So this was a deliberate, extended, and really... um, mean-spirited campaign uh, driven not just by their fear of King, um, not just by their fear of, of, of a race, of, of a black man rising to, to prominence, but really driven by a fear of losing the, the um, power um, as, as, as was enjoyed by you know, white, white people primarily at that time. They, they wanted to maintain the existing power structure. And when you talk about distributing the surveillance transcripts, when they were listening to him in hotel rooms, when they were listening to him on the telephone, talk about the role of the media, in one sense being called heroic, for example, the New York Times, for returning those documents without reporting on them, but not exposing the fact that he was being surveilled. And wiretapped. This is one of the great um, mysteries of the civil rights era. Why didn't anybody report on the fact that our government, the FBI, was in fact surveilling private citizens, not just King, but many of his closest associates. And as we later discovered in 1971, when some of these FBI documents were stolen during a break-in, that the FBI was uh, was conducting a massive campaign of trying to disrupt um, protest leaders, trying to disrupt, disrupt activists who were engaged in peacefully, for the most part, trying to uh, bring change and expand the system of democracy. But um, the real interesting part of the story to me is that dozens of reporters were being leaked these documents. Dozens of reporters were being beseeched by the FBI to publish the news of King's personal life, to write about his, his sexual affairs. And they patted themselves on the back for not reporting that story, protecting King's privacy. But none of them picked up what should have been the much bigger story, which was the surveillance in the first place. Why was our government doing this? Why was it engaged in this kind of conduct against a private citizen, in fact, one of our great moral leaders? And talk about how that went back to the Kennedys. Uh, Both President John F. Kennedy and Attorney General Robert Kennedy, what was their relationship with King? On the one hand, calling Coretta, being deeply concerned about him being jailed, and on the other hand, authorizing the wiretaps. Martin Luther King did not um, endorse JFK, but a lot of people felt like his his tacit endorsement, um, his his um, his words of approval for for Kennedy, really helped. Kennedy swing the election, and after that, King was really disappointed that King didn't that Kennedy didn't move more quickly to enact civil rights legislation. He felt like Kennedy was hemming and hawing, playing politics, trying to conserve, to preserve um, white votes in the South, uh, not wanting to take any chances. So the relationship was was a complicated one. At the same time, it was the Kennedys who authorized the FBI to begin these wiretaps. The Kennedys were at first um, truly concerned that King's connections to communists might have 
damaging political effects. That uh, if the news got out that King had these com- these former communist party members and perhaps some some current communist party members in his circle, that the that it would damage any chances they had of passing civil rights legislation. And the Kennedys warned King and asked him to to get rid of these people. Um, King, King ended up getting rid of one of them, but but keeping his relationship with the other because he truly believed that this was a good man and that his former ties uh, to communists were irrelevant. So King was 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 not playing politics. He was doing what he believed was the right thing morally, standing by a friend and an important ally. And the Kennedys didn't seem to understand that. They didn't understand why he wasn't more concerned with the the political optics. And then going on to uh, Johnson, uh, the fact that he understood he had to keep these memos of FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover secret, who was sending as many as one a week, detailing Dr. King's private life, who knows, filled with facts, filled with lies, um, and the— putting this through a whole different channel with the private secretary of uh, Lyndon Baines Johnson. And when that those documents came out, Jonathan. Just last year, really, within the last year, year and a half, I um, petitioned the LBJ library to open up the files of Mildred Stiegel, who was LBJ's personal secretary, because we've known for a long time that that Johnson kept his most important papers in Mildred Stiegel's safe. He kept his private uh, business uh, papers there. He kept recordings that he made, um, unbeknownst to others, that he was recording all the phone calls from the Oval Office. He kept the tapes in Mildred Stiegel's safe. So I asked them to check to see if there were any FBI files in the state in the safe in Mildred Stiegel's files. And in fact, um, there were hundreds of pages of documents directly from J. Edgar Hoover to the White House with the most personal details, really shockingly odd in in how personal they were, really gossipy things that could not have borne any really importance when it comes to national security. But it just appeared that LBJ and Hoover enjoyed gossiping about the personal details of King's life and uh, also um, about any kind of criticism that King might have had for LBJ. It was raised to the level of, of high national importance, at least in Hoover's mind, if, if uh, King said something critical of, of LBJ. And LBJ, at this, by this time, was becoming consumed with the Vietnam War. Um, it was giving him nightmares, literally causing him nightmares. And um, when King began to speak out more aggressively against the war, LBJ took this very personally. So LBJ seemed to join in the vendetta um, with Hoover in this attack on King. And and I think it's important to recognize that that, that has consequences. You know, when, when LBJ took office, he viewed King as one of his most important allies. They worked together to pass some of the greatest acts. Um, greatest legislation um, in this country's history, the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act. And I think their partnership was was a, an amazing one, maybe the greatest partnership we've ever seen between a president and an activist. But J. Edgar Hoover helped to really um, spread cancer into that relationship. And you can hear it in their phone calls. You can hear how he goes from calling him Martin in those early calls to referring to him as Dr. King and Reverend King and really losing that the, the, uh, the warmth of that relationship and to the point where they are um, really antagonists. LBJ becomes an antagonist of, of Dr. King's. So I'm going to go through a chronology after FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover called Dr. King, quote, the most notorious liar in the country. A reporter asked Dr. King for his response. Dr. King, what is your reaction to the charges made by J. Edgar Hoover? Well, I was quite shocked and surprised to learn of this statement from 
And Mr. Hoover questioning my integrity. And very frankly, I don't understand what motivated the statement. Not long after J. Edgar Hoover called Dr. King the most notorious liar in the country, on November 18th, 1964, Dr. King was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. This is an excerpt from his acceptance speech on December 10th, 1964. I must ask why this prize is awarded to a movement which is beleaguered and committed to unrelenting struggle and to a movement which has not yet won the very peace and brotherhood which is the essence of the Nobel Prize. After contemplation, I conclude that this award which I receive on behalf of that movement is a profound recognition that nonviolence is the answer to the crucial political and moral questions of our time. The need for man to overcome oppression and violence without resorting to violence and oppression. That's Dr. King in his Nobel acceptance speech. There's so much to talk about here, Jonathan Eig. As you said, when he learned he was going to win the Nobel Peace Prize, that announcement comes um, in October, uh, he was hospitalized for depression. Talk about his response at the time. And then that quote of J. Edgar Hoover, who knew all of this was going on, was right after the announcement, um, and knowing that Dr. King had been hospitalized and the response of Dr. King to hearing Hoover call him this. Yeah, I think um, J. Edgar Hoover was furious that Dr. King had won the Nobel Prize. It, he took it personally. You know, here's this, this black man, this man who's attacking American values as J. Edgar Hoover sees them. J. Edgar Hoover is deeply committed to the, his version of white Christian nationalism. And for, for King to win the Nobel Prize was a personal affront to him, I think. And he redoubled his efforts at that point to try to damage King, to try to destroy his reputation. At the same time, the Nobel Peace Prize becomes a calling to Dr. King and to Coretta Scott King, both of whom say we have a greater responsibility than ever now. And that responsibility includes not limiting our work to the fight in the South, not limiting our, our work to integration, but to look at racism throughout the country, to look at poverty, to look at militarism, to look at materialism. And he really begins to expand not just his, his vision, but his activism, his work. He begins taking on more fights in the North. He begins speaking out more against the Vietnam War. And he um, broadens his, his, his role and becomes, you know, a much greater moral leader. And this, in turn, further infuriates J. Edgar Hoover. And we see the campaign to destroy King just um, growing and growing. So what we have here, um, sadly, um, as, as uh, the Nobel Prize helps to crystallize, um, we recognize that, that J. Edgar Hoover is actually one of the few people who understands that Martin Luther King is presenting a massive threat. He's calling for a new kind of American democracy. He's calling for a, a vision of America that gets us past some of our um, materialistic, militaristic um, habits and, and 
brings in a new dawn of a new day, and and that is a huge affront and a, and a, and a threat to J. Edgar Hoover and the way he sees the world. I want to go to that address, Dr. Martin Luther King, April 4th, 1967, a year to the day before he was assassinated in Memphis, the speech he gave at Riverside Church explaining why he opposed the war in Vietnam. As I have walked among the desperate, rejected, and angry young men, I have told them that Molotov cocktails and rifles would not solve their problems. I have tried to offer them my deepest compassion while maintaining my conviction that social change comes most meaningfully through nonviolent action. But they ask, and rightly so, what about Vietnam? They ask if our own nation wasn't using massive doses of violence to solve its problems, to bring about the changes it wanted. Their questions hit home, and I knew that I could never again raise my voice against the violence of the oppressed in the ghettos without having first spoken clearly to the greatest purveyor of violence in the world today, my own government. Jonathan Eig, the significance of what he said going beyond civil rights in the United States, um, the attack on him, not only by those who opposed him, but by his closest allies saying he was risking the entire civil rights project. And then the corporate media. You had Life magazine calling the speech demagogic slander, sounding like a script for Radio Hanoi. The Washington Post saying King, quote, diminished his useful to his cause, his country, his people. Um, talk about how King both was deeply affected by this, but doubled down because he said it was his moral obligation. To me, this is my favorite King speech because it summarizes his entire life and everything he's believed in from childhood. This is a this is a man, remember, he, he came to fame at age 26 leading the Montgomery bus boycott. He was assassinated at age 39. A very short career, 12 and a half years of activism. But it all began with the lessons he learned before he knew how to read, which lessons he learned from the Bible that said all men are created equal, that said that said war is wrong, war is a sin against God, and that all men are brothers. And he sums it all up in this speech uh, on April 4th, 1967 at Riverside Church in New York, sums it up so beautifully, really um, crystallizes everything he's been saying all his life and doubles down at a time when he could have backed off, when he could have stepped aside, when he was under attack from the left and the right. He was not conservative enough for 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 the for the conservative so he was not liberal enough for the liberals. Um, he was he was getting it from all sides. He he really just keeps marching, keeps going forward, and plans for this poor people's campaign in Washington, where he's going to basically occupy Washington D.C. until the government agrees to fundamental economic reforms and fundamental changes in how we we feed and and care for the poor, fundamental changes in how we view our our militarism, and and he is battered for this. The New York Times, um, Life Magazine, The Washington Post, they all attack him. And we have transcripts of his phone calls. We can even hear him on the phone with one of his best friends and closest advisors who says to him, that speech was a mistake. It's going to cost us funding in the North. We're going to lose our liberal supporters. You're going to have no relationship anymore with LBJ. 
And it's painful to read these transcripts. You can just, your heart goes out to King because he has to explain to one of his closest friends, don't you understand me? Don't you know what I've been saying all these years? It's not out of pragmatism. I may have been wrong politically, but I was not wrong morally. And that is King. That is what makes him a hero for our day because he never backed down. He never gave up on his true beliefs, and he continued to insist even when it would have been a lot easier for him to step back. Jonathan and I want to thank you for this interview and hope you can stay for us to do a post-show interview. We'll post it at democracynow.org to talk about King's early years and the allies he was forced to uh, sever ties with for a time, like Bayard Rustin. We're talking to Jonathan Eig, longtime journalist, author. His new biography is out, King, A Life. That does it for our show. Go to democracynow.org for all transcripts of show. I'm Amy Goodman. Thanks for joining us.